0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stephen King cast. One man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I am reviewing episode 8 of Hulu's Castle Rock. So, guys, before I get into my thoughts, I'm going to read uh, from Decider.com Zach Dion's uh, recap so that we have a, a basis upon which I can build my analysis. So... From Zach Dion, who writes, The genius execution of the queen forced us to leave Henry hanging in the filter, being blasted with schisma. Or into the schisma. Something. Despite Odin Branch's pontificating, we still don't know. And as with many things, we aren't finding out tonight. In Castle Rock, Episode 8, Past Perfect, we aren't even reuniting with our guy until we take in a ten-minute vignette about a man's descent into madness In many ways, a miniaturized version of The Shining. Lost-style boom, a thrumming bell, and a jarring swipe of the camera whoosh us to the face of an about-to-snap professor named Gordon. He's barely familiar. Half of the couple, Molly, briefly tried selling a house, and it's discomforting having no clue why we're here. The show keeps injecting meaning anywhere it can, though, and the smug guy in the hot seat contends... Repression is a cruel Darwinian tool. The human mind is expressingly designed to forget much of its past shining, um, suffering. The Shining's very first sentence fits. Another cold open on an interview with a violent academic. Jack Torrance thought, officious little prick. The doofus is, the only, is only in the room so the prof can assault him for sleeping with his wife. Gordon said wifey by... Gordon and said wifey by, Lorden, by Warden Lacey's house to turn to Castle Rock Historic Bed and Breakfast with local murders recreated in exquisite detail. They're planning to acquire more properties and help rebrand the town as what Jackie affectionately refers to as a murder theme park. Instead of typing the all work and no play credo ad nauseum, Gordon walks Sanity's tightrope by prepping mannequin body parts for gory displays. But as the overlook gave Jack the final push he needed, something about Lacey's dozens of oil paintings of the kid, yikes, takes possession of the professor. Nor does it help that his first guests are married folks having an affair. Wearing clear blood spatter ready glasses Patrick Bateman might have tried at his age, Gordo nips upstairs to slash the adulterers to death under the watchful eye of the kid up there on the wall. He rises like he's one of his death mannequins and relievingly revealed soon after does not kill his wife. She gets an affair. He gets a double murder. Repression, baby. Molly gets visions of plenty of what Henry has seen and maybe more. It's again absorbing and unenlightening. But what in God's name is that flash of the kid looking fancy with coiffed hair shouting, shouting no? Tough luck on the answer for that one. Ditto dead Odin with a fire poker in his eye and no one to witness it. Unless the kid or a stabby unknown party visited the site, the suspects are Molly. Odin's interpreter, Willie, or Odin himself. None seems sensible or worth explaining. exploring. At this stage, it's starting to feel like we have to let some stuff go. They really just locked you in there and left, Molly asks in the car after rescuing Henry. Is there something new he understands now, looking out her window? I know it was only a few hours, but it felt like years, he said. I thought I knew the, how the world had worked, what was real and what's not. Henry finds his mother asleep and the house silent. And it's time to have a face-off with the entity who last week seemed a lock for a reincarnated Matthew Deaver. Somehow, that all-but-certain reveal is already fraying. He shows Pangborn's body to Henry and suggests they hide him in the woods to protect Ruth. Then, echoing their first conversation as well as Henry's father-son Woods Walk, the kid asks, Do you hear it? You do, finally. We have to go. We have to go... Get into the... Oh, well, We have to go to the woods. He gets angry for the first time before hobbling away as the cops pull up. I waited for you. I waited 27 years. I rescued you from that basement and I didn't ask for any of this. Rescued him? Ruth isn't arrested, allowing her to explain to Henry, I don't know how he came back, but he did. Only I stood up to him this time like I should have before. I protected you and your boy. The fact that she's forgotten that she actually killed Alan while totally in line with her dementia sadly feels like tampering with the evidence of Matthew being the kid. It's hard to picture a more clever and emotionally resonant solution to the mystery, so hopefully Castle Rock isn't planning an awkward twist or an out-of-the-blue explanation via a Stephen King novel. The show hasn't set itself up to pop out and say, surprise, he's Leland has gone. And I completely agree. Odin promises Henry self-knowledge abounded inside the filter, plus true closeness with his son, and given a chance to be honest, he keeps he keeps giving Wendell a BS I had to do something non apology. Little Champ had to sleep in the pews of his grandfather's church after Ruth sent him away without explanation. It's fucked up, Dad, Wendell assesses. Then, in line to board the bus back to his mom. Grandma's got dementia, and she taught me more about you in one day than you have in my whole life. Henry promises him a few weeks together soon. He only needs a couple more days in town. A bird smashes into the window before departure, and Wendell gets his first experience with the old schisma blaring in his ear. He gets off at the Jerusalem's lot bus station and starts walking to the rock. Derry and Chester's Mill got their overt mentions last week, by the way. To follow up the kid's basement trip, Henry sneaks into Lacey's, which, after all that cellarish teasing, yields nothing. With nobody home and his car parked right in front, Henry creeps to the second floor. Two questions, why and why? Andre Holland throughout the series has to quietly react to a lot of weird shit, but Henry seems different since the filter, and his reaction walking into the room with all the kids' portraits is a new species of this cannot be happening, but of course it's happening. He learns the kid doesn't age, and a familiar shirt either gives him yet another secret of the puzzle or simply emphasizes the link between them. Discovered by the wacko Gordon, Henry isn't remotely prepared, weekly trying, I knocked, and I'm a lawyer as explanations. Wifey sneaks up and stabs Henry in the side, much like the kid got stuck last week, only with gray sweatpants instead of a gray sweatshirt. The scuffle leads over, leads her to gash o- her own throat, and Henry bolts. A uh, fully feral Gordon catches him, and in a fantastic turn of events, Jackie Torrance materializes to chop the prof in the head with an axe. Discriminating viewers probably noted her tale that of that. Her, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, discriminating viewers previously noted her tale of that namesake uncle trying to axe murder his wife and kid at some fancy ski resort was unfaithful to the Rogue Mallet featuring novel, but it's underscored here as an homage to Stanley Kubrick's film. Like the Bob Gunton photo in Shawshank, Jackie reminds aficionados of King's adaptation. They're as welcome here as constant readers. Waiting to talk to police for the second time that day, Henry gets a call saying Ruth showed up at the church asking if Pangborn was alive or dead this time. He flees the scene and it's unclear how that's going to work out with an asshole cop already calling Henry the Black Death uh, that morning and noting the body count amassing in and around his wake. We end off on what's most important in withholding. Molly sees more visions, running in the forest. Henry as a kid in sunglasses again, herself bloody on the ground. She chomps an unusual amount of oxy, throws on sunglasses at night, and manages to drive towards Henry's house without incident. She stops at her childhood home where the lights are on and the kids sitting on side the stairs. Asked where Henry is, he answers, I don't think he's ready yet. He brushes past Molly's confusion only to double it. But you can help me because you know me. And he knows her. What is this house and her childhood were like? How does he have all these uncomfortable details? In her bedroom, snow falling out the window, always captivating, soundtrack skipping like a needle past the vinyl's edge, she says, I was there, out there in the woods. That's where you died. Um, And I got to shout out Zach here uh, for catching something that I didn't even think about, but he points out a great constant reader Easter egg. He writes, Gordon has always been interested in the macabre. He did his PhD on the BTK killer. The Matron of Castle Rock Historic B&B references the serial killer that inspired King's 2010 novella, A Good Marriage. He wrote it to explore what might happen in such a case if the wife suddenly found out about her husband's awful hobby, which also happens here. Okay, guys, let me get into my thoughts on the episode. So, as it begins, right away we see that Mark Haralick is back as George. Now, you knew that this wouldn't be the last of him when we last saw him way back in whatever it was, episode two or three, probably episode three. Um, There's a lot of psychological jargon dancing around themes of repression and forgetting, which reinforced that central theme of this show, Um, his wife Lilith's uh, continual request to forget that the fair ever happened. What makes this work so well is that when Gordon later rebukes Lilith's advancements as she asks, can't we just pretend it never happened, her affair is wrapped up in the other man's proposed theory. So Gordon can't forget what happened because if he did go along with that to forget what happened and went back to his wife, then the other man's point was correct and as a result, he'd be again emasculated. So I really like the way that they worked that in. Um, But back in that original scene, that stuffy academic setting is quickly shattered with an act of violence as George breaks his repression and leans into his aggressive nature. The joke here is that in the second before he snaps, he states he might be a fool, but he's a fool with tenure, thinking that the tenure will protect him from the assault. We We quickly cut to a shot of he and his wife driving to Castle Rock, visually proving that he's really only a fool. And then we get the answer to the question back when we first met them. They aren't just buying the house to buy it, they're buying it to turn it into a gruesome bed and breakfast, which doesn't just lean into the history of Castle Rock, but it also capitalizes on the boom of popular true crime stories. The murderinos of My Favorite Murder, Fans of Making Murder, Serial, Sword and Scale, others. Much like Molly's wish to modernize the mill, the desire to build on the fad of the moment keeps Castle Rock firmly anchored in the trend of right now. And then we have the the sequence in which he he's continually um, repressing the urges that he has. Uh, you know, even when he's trying to throw himself into. His second act in life and into this this world as the owner of a, a bed and breakfast, he can't escape the memory of his wife's affair because the first time renters that they have are there to have an affair and it's just in his face. Um, and that that moment where he's just sitting on his bed listening, listening, you know, obviously thinking about, you know his wife um, and her lover and just obsessing on it the the way that the Screams of passion turn to screams of horror. It, it, it's so well done. This whole rapid descent, it, it's, it's handled so wonderfully. This cold open, it, it basically functions like a mini movie, beginning with the exile from the college, the second act in Castle Rock, and the submission to his bubbling rage in a truly gruesome visual of blood-splattered Gordon standing next to the corpses of the adulterers. After the credits, Molly rescues Henry from the van. And I'm disappointed we didn't get more from the schisma. So much was built up, and, and I'm sure that within the next two hours um, left, we'll, we'll get the answers that we need to the schisma. But it, it just... I, I kind of expected more than him just being trapped in a van. Like I said, I'm sure that there will be more, um, but at this point, I had expected something bigger than than, than what we got. Um And also when we had last seen these two together, she admitted that she killed his dad. Henry apologizes to her. He tells her that she's not crazy, but this is a heavy bomb to drop on someone that would irrevocably change a relationship even if the father was a horrible person. To let this go without mention seems almost disingenuous to the characters. I'm not really sure how I feel about this. Um, I don't know. With two hours left, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know if it's going to get brought up again. It just kind of seems like a a big plot point to, to just have Henry not address again from this point forward. Returning to the home, something isn't right, namely the kid who he had last seen as he dropped him off at Juniper Hill. Realizing that he doesn't know anything about this man. He might have put his family in danger. He asks Wendell, returning from his overnight mall excursion, to go inside and lock the door. Are we going to get our big showdown between our two mystery characters? No, not really. Nor should we. Not yet, anyway. The kid shows Henry the body of Alan Pangborn. Speaking more than he ever has before, with more emotion and urgency, the kid insists that they have to go help Ruth by hiding Alan's body. It's also revealed that the kid hears the schism as well. And as the police arrive, the kid shows frustration for the first time, telling Henry, I waited for you, I waited 27 years, I rescued you from that basement, and I didn't ask for any of this. He flees into the woods, but Henry doesn't have much time to dwell on this bombshell revelation that this prisoner had been the salvation to his own prison while raising the question of what basement? Now, we know that Henry had indeed been kept in a basement, and we've seen a basement prominently in the show, so all roads are pointing to Warden Lacey's house. He imprisoned one person in a subterranean room. Why not another? As the kid flees, Henry steps outside, and something more horrifying than murderous college professors occurs. An innocent black man walks out of his house to find a policeman with a gun. At that moment, I grew very, very scared for Henry the former police chief dead in the garage, a black man a few feet away. Things are not looking good for Henry. Things have begun to spiral out, spiral out of control in this town. I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but chaos and worse impulses begin to take hold of this town, with Gordon sawing up the bodies of his victims, and in a surprise twist, the still-living Lilith, who was not murdered by Gordon, um, assisting in the cleanup jackie uh comes to to visit because of course she does. uh you know how is she not going to investigate the the evil bed and breakfast that that has popped up uh, that is uh capitalizing on on all of the history of of Castle Rock? She's studied enough evil in this town, however, to to recognize when something is off, okay, and as this occurred fact that she's able to sniff out that something's wrong with, with these people, it makes you question if there was something, if there was something to it that, uh, that she's able to sniff out the, the, the danger of these two. And she didn't get that same sensation when she was with the kid a few episodes back. If her Castle Rock murder sense didn't tingle then, but it is now, Is that an indication that the kid is indeed not necessarily an inherently evil individual? In the aftermath of the discovery of Alan's body, Henry and Wendell have a moment together. Even in death, Henry doesn't fully warm up to Alan, saying that he was someone who wanted to be a good man, and sometimes he was. I like that he still doesn't fully give Alan credit. Yes, while Alan was complicit in locking up the kid, He had protected Castle Rock for years and took care of his mother while Henry ran and hid. Outside, the state police speak with Henry, and she's not having it. And she lays into him about his presence bringing badness to Castle Rock. Um, And as she's saying that, she drops a nickname that apparently Henry had and calls him the Black Death. Now, this is loaded. It is such a loaded term because this could have been anything, right? He could have been bad luck, Harry. He could have been... um, It could have been anything. But just the fact that it's called the Black Death, the fact that he is only one of three black characters in this town, um, really... Reinforces that that small town racism and the fact that it's coming from a, a figure of authority that it brings an insidiousness uh, to it, and it's not dwelled upon. It's not really you know rubbed in our faces, um, but it did land um, very very powerfully. Realizing that something is definitely amiss in this town, Henry decides that it's best if Wendell heads home. And he pops him on the bus. Wendell begins to uh, ask him to come with him, but Henry is stuck between a rock and a hard place here. I, honestly, like he, he can't just leave. He should leave. And the fact that Wendell is, is begging him to come with him it, it doesn't bode well for either character. But we also understand that that Henry can't leave. He has to, he has to help out Ruth. He has to figure out what to do with his mother um if we think for a second that Wendell is safe by getting on this bus and leaving town we are quickly shown that he's not as a bird flies into the windshield of the bus as the sound of the schisma begins to overtake him back at home Wendell talks to Molly on the phone and I like this this is cute it's like they're they're kids again uh, just sitting in their home sitting on their beds talking on the phone I, I I there's not a lot to this scene uh you know it doesn't go on forever but just i don't know i i don't know why it tickled me as much as it did but definitely did um he asks about the lacy basement with the lock on it and uh she says that she couldn't find the key so she wasn't able to get into it sorry guys it's been a long week um but i'm pretty sure that you you can't sell a house without an inspection and you're not going to get a, a a stamp of approval if the house inspector isn't able to get into the basement. I I just, I, I, I don't think that that would be a thing. Oh, well. Henry arrives at the former Lacey household, and I was freaking out the entire time. I did not want Henry to enter the house, not because I thought his life was in danger. I just didn't want the black man embroiled in mystery and tragedy to break into a house and leave his fingerprints everywhere. And then Gordon shows up. The tension from this scene is maddening. The way Henry backs into the hallway, you feel he's being stalked. And when the exploratory knife jab from Lilith gets him, though I hadn't thought his life was in danger, now I worry that he'd be gravely injured and worse, framed for the murders that had occurred. As the scene unfolded, I was watching through my fingers, laughing in discomfort as Henry stumbled his way through the murder attempt, somehow making them stab themselves in a bit of naked gun slapstick violence. I'm not saying that it wasn't well done. It was perfectly executed when the, the, the music drops out and we're just there with them. And it's, it's very, very intense. Um, the remarkable choreography and tension. There is just, for me, and it's my own subjectivity, I, a whiff of humor to it. Um, and I appreciate it. This is not a diss. I, it, it just appears that the bad fortune that surrounds Henry also seems to be a, a blanket or a shield of protection as well. Another shield of protection is Jackie Torrance, living up to her namesake and using an axe. I don't want to say good for Jackie, but she finally gets to be a part of the Castle Rock tragedy that she had wanted so badly. The groupie has finally joined the rock band. Now, I have to say that the music continues to be incredibly effective. The sound as Molly seeks out uh, or, or when, when she winds up driving to her house and that it's the same sound as Wendell gets off the bus station in Jerusalem's lot. Um, it's incredibly unsettling. And we conclude with Henry driving off to find his mother and Molly with the kid who reveals that he's very familiar with her and drops the bombshell that she died in the woods. What does this mean? Did she die and come back? Is he thinking about events that are going to occur so to him they've already happened? Um, I... I it's just an extra bombshell on a show that has just been dropping bombshells. Um, with two hours left, it's just, you know, what is happening here and how is this all going to wrap up? And please note that as they look out the window, the first of the seasons, Snow begins to fall. That is an ominous note to end on considering the role that Snow played when Henry both disappeared and was found. Things are coming full circle as we head into our final two hours. Now let's review just what we have seen. We had, we had thought that the bad things that occurred in Castle Rock were a result of the kid being left um, or let out of Shawshank Prison, right? Um, it's very easy to think that because you know we hear Castle, we at we hear um, Alan Payneborn saying, "Don't let that kid out," um, you know, Warden Lacey had kept him in prison for years. Things seemed okay with the kid in prison, but it's also the, the bad things start occurring, not necessarily when the kid gets let out, but also when Henry comes back to town. So if you think about it, bad things happen around Henry. I mean, the, even before he gets back to Castle Rock, the prisoner had a really bad death in his presence. Um, the gator reacted negatively towards him. We then get uh, Zaleski's rampage. Molly's affliction seems to start up more. Alan Pangborn dies. There's the fire in the woods. There's the Juniper Hill fire. Ruth jumps off a bridge. There's the death of Odin and possibly Willie. There's the, bread and be- the, the bed and breakfast murders. So it it, it isn't just that the kid has been let out. What is Henry's role in all of this? And then we have some lingering questions. Frances Conroy has now shown up twice. Um, now, you don't cast Frances Conroy just to have her in two brief scenes. So I am really wondering what's going to happen with Frances Conroy in the in the final two hours, I, I just feel that she's going to play a much bigger part. And are we going to see a flashback to what really happened to Odin and Willie in the woods? Is Molly a stone-cold killer, or did someone get to them first? And of course, why is the kid wearing Henry's shirt in that picture? Here is the big question related to Stephen King lore. Are Henry and the kid twinners is the kid's real name henry deaver in the first episode when his name was asked of him he literally said henry deaver what if this wasn't a swerve what if the showrunners gave us the answer as far back in the first episode so for those of you who don't know exactly what i'm talking about the twinners um is a is a element of the um the book the talisman and its sequel black house um, that that illustrates that there is a, a world um, just outside of our own connected to um, it's just it's an it's another world um, called the territories and there are uh, corresponding doppelgangers so to speak um, to us so you would have a twinner in that world that is living his or her life um, independent of yours. And that life that that person's living could be extremely different. Um, but there are some characteristics that would be the same, that makes it recognizably you, even if the physicalities are different. So, you know, the, you could be a, a regular person here and you could be over there um, almost like a mutant. It could be, it could be. Um you could look different. The person on the other side could look a little bit older. Um, You know, who knows? So there's nothing to say that you could have someone that's Caucasian in one world and black in another and be twinners of one another. Um, And technically, the kid could be the Henry Deaver of that world. You could have it. This could be some sort of riff on what King and Straub did with twinners. And we do see twinning, um, not in the, in the technical sense of the talisman, but in a you know a thematic sense, um, in, in many of, of King's works, uh, with the Dark Tower, which plays heavily on the concept of alternate realities, all realities. Um, so it, it is not out of the realm of possibility that Henry Deaver, is two people on this show that there are two Henry Devers, one from a different world, so that that is a possibility. And we got two hours left to figure out exactly what the truth is. Now I got a couple of Easter eggs here. Of course, the the big one is Jerusalem's Lot. Um, Wendell gets off the Jerusalem's Lot bus station at night, which is never a good thing. But it you know the fact that he wasn't attacked by a vampire, um, you know, indicates that it's. Either the vampires have all been cleaned up, um, or Salem's Lot is it was never overrun by by vampires in this in this continuity. And the second thing is, if you look on the wall of the paintings, there is one painting of the kid standing in what appears to be a field of roses. Now, this could just be that uh, someone in the art department commissioned a painter to draw a picture of bill skarsgard and that was it okay paint this picture and then the um the artist decided to kind of add this this rose feature that could be it um or this could be some sort of signal to the audience in the know um that there are other worlds than these at play in Castle Rock. Who knows? Um, and also just the fact that there's all these paintings that, that does invoke um, Patrick Danville and uh, Rose from Rose Matter and the painting. as well. So paintings in the world of Stephen King do have significance. So... Let's see if, if there's significance to the painting of roses on the wall. Okay, guys, this was a shorter episode this week, um, but uh, I am very excited about uh, the, the episodes 9 and 10. I can't believe that we are almost at the end of our time with Castle Rock. It really, really flew by, and I have really enjoyed recapping these episodes. So um, that's all I got this week, guys. And uh, may you we'll have long days and pleasant nights And I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.